She is a writer, poet, playwright and performer. Estelle is artistic director of Feral Productions, a company launched in 2009, and is a director of the Courtyard, Courtyard Theatre in Hereford. Although the two have worked together in the past, they were particularly inspired by the story about the Magdalene home of Hereford. Sarah Jane has said of this production, Hush Now is one of the most interesting and profoundly moving projects I've ever worked with. Following much research into the archives and personal interviews, Sarah Jane created nine poems depicting such a small ev evocation of life in these poems. The book is available later. I have read these poems and was moved to tears. Sarah Jane and Estelle, through Feral Productions, have sought to give these anonymous, forgotten women a voice and celebrate the tenacity of these women who survived the home and went to live full and vibrant lives. Ladies and gentlemen. Um, so we know that a few of you have seen the show already, um, and quite a, a lot of you probably haven't as well. It's a problem with doing things in uh, site-specific places, is that it's very difficult to take over a building for any length of time without somebody getting annoyed somewhere. But we did, we managed it, and uh, for a week in the, we took over the Hereford Cathedral School. During their half-term, we thought it was probably better to do that. So the project was born... Um, over a year ago, it was, a born, it was born a year and a half ago, and on, on the street where I live in Hereford, I'd noticed a, a building that was just slightly different to the rest. It just, the work I do is site-inspired. Feral Productions is a site-inspired theatre company, which means that we really respond to the sites and the places themselves and give them voice, as well as the people and the stories that took place within them. And uh, there was just something about this building that, that drew me, and I didn't know what it was. And then uh, in one of the sessions that I run at the courtyard, uh, uh, the, a, a reading group, um, one, of the, one of the participants just happened to mention in conversation that uh, Hereford was, had loads of mother and baby homes, loads of Magdalene homes and mother and baby and homes, slightly different thing. And my ears just pricked up, and I, I just knew. I knew immediately, and I said do you know where they are, or were? And she went, yes, there was one here, there was one there, there were loads, so there was one there, one there, and, and there was one on Barton Road. Ta-da, there it was. And at that moment, I thought, that's my next project. So I was mulling it for a little while, you've got to think about the right funding, where you get the funding from, who's going to support it, who to work with. It's always the hardest part. <laughs> and, um, and I'm also... Uh, I'm not a writer, I write, I write if I have to write, but I'd much rather bring in a writer to, to do the work. Um, and round about the same time, the Great Place Scheme uh, launched their Hidden Gems element, which was all about hidden histories, and it felt like that was going to be the way to go with that project. And then round about that time, Sarah Jane got in touch with me, and we had worked briefly together on Seven Airs, which was here a few years ago. Um, but I didn't work closely with her. I worked with her material, um, but not her. I didn't direct the piece that her, her material was used for. And but she, she wrote to me and she said, oh, I want to come and see you. And being quite fussy about my writers, I was a bit apprehensive. <laughs> and I should have known better. Really. <laughs> News to me. <laughs> <laughs> and she came through to Hereford and we sat and had a coffee at the courtyard and a chat. And I was... Uh, I was polite, I would hope, but um, slightly um, reserved. And she said, look, here are some of my poems. And, um, uh, and so we, uh, I had a look and I read through and I thought, oh, oh yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> and, and she fitted, she fitted, she fitted. And I, I didn't launch straight in there, I just stayed with it for a few days. You've got to be really right about the team that you pull together, on, on, especially on a project like this, it's just... And a lot of our work is very, very sensitive. Um, but this one, it just felt like we had to treat it with such a light touch um, so as to really respect the stories that were inherent and um, that the buildings inhabited. 
And then uh, after a couple of days, I, I, I just knew to just stay. I could feel it forming, you know, in its gestation period. And um, I said, well, how about this? Yes, was the response, resounding. And in she came. <laughs> yes. So having passed the audition... <laughs> it was a bit like the that. courtyard... Um, <laughs> Yes, I was presented with the, the uh, possibility of writing for this particular project. Um, it was daunting. I, I knew nothing about maternity provision in Herefordshire, uh, past or present. Um, I knew nothing of the history of Magdalen homes and laundries in the county. Um, what I did know was stories that I'd heard of these places in Ireland and Scotland. Um, I didn't know that they existed in England. And so from the research that then followed, my eyes were completely opened. Um, we'll talk about the research a bit later on, but um, obviously I was fed a great deal of material. So many stories um, of women who had been incarcerated or had their babies adopted um, or were just stigmatised by society. And I decided that the poems... I would write a series of nine poems. It felt right to write poems for this and not a script um, where you have dialogue. I wanted them to be uh, just, just formed as, as poems. And I wanted each one to be very different in its form and style to represent the different women that were being um, profiled and explored. Um, so, uh, yeah... Um, I also um, knew that I wanted the poems to have the titles of wild flowers. Um, I didn't want the women to be named um, because for me, there's something fragile about a wild flower and the fact that through concrete and through the harshest conditions, they will still flower and they will still be present. And it just felt right that that was the metaphor for, um, for these poems. Um, so that was kind of how I approached the project. Um, I knew from my part that I'd be writing the poems, I'd be handing them over to Estelle, who would then change them <laughs> and adapt them uh, into songs, which would th and they were then going to be given to a composer. So... Um, it was a huge amount of trust on my part. Um, Estelle has talked about her you know, thoughts about working with me as a writer. I had the same thoughts <laughs> about working uh, with Estelle when I, I knew how it would be working, which is basically I'm handing essentially my babies, my poems, over to somebody else to then um, adapt, change, cut, uh, move things around. But actually... I thought that is a really interesting process. I've never done that. And I trusted her to, to do a good job with them. My only stipulation was that when it came to the production, I wanted them to be available to the audience in their original form, how, uh, how I wrote them, which is why we have these, these booklets. And these are the poems that I wrote um, as, as I wrote them. Um, so... Yes, so, um, so we started on the project. So I was there at home with my laptop, sitting in bed, cup of coffee on the go here, waiting for the research to come. So <laughs> we, we employed um, Elizabeth Semper O'Keefe, the archivist in Hereford, to access... I, I, did, I did a lot on my own, but, there, you know, unless you know which stones to turn over it's it's really difficult and she was brilliant she went straight into the archive just knew exactly where to go and we had a very lucky i did a press call out as well we had one response and i thought that was absolutely revealing it's still so stigmatized as a subject um, that nobody wanted to talk to us except this one woman and she was the deputy matron of st martin's home in hereford and we we went and met her together. We spent many hours with her. She was incredible. She was such a resource and a wealth of material and an incredible woman in, in her own right. So a lot of the stories have come from her, Anne, Anne Stokes is her name, but also we went round the buildings 
And that, that moment, and I knew, I knew we were going to get wildflowers because when we went up to Bartistry Convent, which was the Magdalene home, as opposed to the mother and baby home, uh, uh, just outside Hereford, uh, we wandered about for a long time, talked and just digested and uh, assimilated the information that was coming our way. Um, as we were leaving on one of our visits, I nudged Sarah and said, look at that. <laughs> planting and there in the middle of the pavement where there was nothing there was no soil or anything was this little flower just pushing up like that and I, I could feel it land <laughs> and lo and behold wildflowers were next and and there's, there's it's been a very serendipitous project all the way along it, it, it's nice we get a feeling that we're on the right track because suddenly that door opens and that door opens and that door opens and moments like that were confirmed uh, almost etherically when Anne said to us uh, that at St Martin's home they had their own chapel because they were they were rejected at the church they were forced to sit in the back row the minister wouldn't speak to them nobody would speak to them and she said right that's it when I'm not going to take them there again she went um, took them back to their own chapel which the art students from the Hereford College had decorated and painted for them with wildflowers and stories like that have just come up all through this project. Um, uh, so our research period was extensive and, and combined with synchronous events which really confirmed for us that we were on the right track and got very much woven into our mm. work, didn't, didn't Yeah, it? I mean, basically, uh, I just became a filter for things. You yeah. know? Um, the material, as Estelle said, came from Elizabeth Semper O'Keefe at um, Hark. Um, but also from those conversations, meetings, personal stories, um, press. Uh, there was a lot in the national press about, um, uh, certainly when the Pope visited Ireland, um, there were protests about the um, uh, forced adoptions um, and the conditions of the Magdalene laundries. So I was following all of that. Um, certainly information about the locations, uh, again, they threw up some interesting facts. Nothing was rejected. I mean, at this point, I didn't really know what, what would work, what, what bits I could work in. So um, I carried this with me everywhere, which is packed full of notes. And at the table at the back there, which you're very welcome to look at after the, the event, um, are my books that I used for research and also the press cuttings. Um, I mean, one of the things that struck me with, with the material that was coming through was, was actually the level of naivety about sex, about childbirth, um, people, about pregnancy. People just didn't talk about it. It was a silent subject. And in some ways, to our modern ears, it sounds almost unbelievable. Um, I just want to read a very quick... This is a verse from a poem, Clockflower, in here where um, I quoted um, pretty much um, ad verbatim about, um, sorry, cuckoo flower, um, a, a conversation that I heard um, about a woman who was in um, a mother and baby home. She was pregnant. Um, she was probably about seven, eight months pregnant, so the baby was due. And she said, um, what will happen, I asked my friend. Sally's on her third, she should know. Is a zip put in? She shakes off a laugh. No, no zip. She thinks I'm daft. Well, how does it come out then? Well, same way it went in, Sally chirrups. I shift in my chair. But it can't. Legs, body, the head. It's only a little hole. Queasy, froth in my mouth. It'll get bigger, don't worry, she says. I mean, that's incredible. That's, that's how even the... You know, the, the, the act of giving birth was... Treat, was people were just so naive about it. Um, and to be honest, the only way that you would really know for a lot of people, certainly in rural communities, um, about becoming pregnant is if you actually had sex. <laughs> then you'd find out. And then it was too late. So these, these um, stories that were coming through... Um, but also as well, what was interesting, because I, uh, we picked on the idea of wild flowers, I started researching the folklore of flowers. Um, so some of the books up there are sort of gardening books and uh, plant books. But I wove these, um, 
sort of stories in with the women. So, for example, um, in the poem Daisy, which you'll hear this morning, um, the character makes reference to the tips of the petals of daisies being pink. Um, and the story being that when the Virgin Mary was picking daisies for her son, she reached through some thorns to pick the daisies and pricked her finger and the blood fell onto the flowers and tinged them pink on the petals. And I thought that is a wonderful image to use within the context of what I'm talking about. Um, and, so, and also as well, Bryony with the forked root. Again, um, I used that in the poems. So when you read them, it's not just the stories of the women, it's the stories of the plants as well and the flowers that come into this. Um, another example being Love in a Mist, where uh, I used the old folkloric names for Love in a Mist um, in the poem. So, um, excuse me, let me find it. Um, so it's lady in the green, love in a puzzle, devil in a bush. Fantastic names that fit so well with this. And I thought these have to come in. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's how kind of the poems started blossoming. Which they did. And while Sarah Jane was sitting in bed with her laptop and probably vast amounts of coffee, I was <laughs> biting my nails in Hereford waiting for the first poem to arrive. And, uh, and then it did. And uh, it was... I, an unforgettable moment when Daisy arrived in my inbox because she, it was that sense that actually somehow she was suddenly brought to life. Suddenly she was given a voice and I couldn't speak. <laughs> actually, because I, 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 I phoned you up, didn't I? Oh no, you phoned me. No, I, I emailed, that's right. You're saying, getting the full story. I'm absolutely <laughs> speechless, absolutely speechless. And, uh, so, and she rang me. Um, and I said, no, no, literally don't expect me to be able to speak because I'm in floods. It just, it was extraordinary, um, extraordinarily moving and beautiful. And so Daisy, I think we've, we've always had a little soft spot for because mm. she, was our, she was our first, wasn't she? Mm. Um, yes. And, and, and then, of course, I, I, I took it and I adapted it. I have a musical background, so um, when I adapt poetry, there's always that question of why. You know, why do people adapt poems and put them to music? And it's difficult to. It, I'm fascinated by different delivery techniques and how they change an experience, an audience experience. And there's, there's something about in, in musical theatre. Um, when the when the emotion rises in musical theatre, you move from dialogue to music. And that's what it really felt like with these, is like, actually, these poems have to... They they, how can they not be sung? It just drove, drove that way. Um, and then while I was doing it, of course, being highly reverent with Sarah Jane's material um, and uh, also the, 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 the content of the material that we were working with, just adapting them rhythmically, not having any melody or anything in my head, that was the job of the composer, but a, a, a changing the shape of them somehow. Um, and having to edit, because actually I learned very quickly that if I used the whole poem, each song was going to be about 20 minutes long, <laughs> and it was just absolutely impossible. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And then handing my adaptation over to the composer, and then working directly with the composer, she and I sat together, and, um, and she would give me a first draft, and then I would say, OK, we need to go this way, we need to go that way. Um, but always uh, trying to respect the individuality of each poem that Sarah Jane had brought about and the, the characters, the girls, the girls therein. So this is Daisy. Yeah. Do you want to read the... Oh, yes, of course, yeah. yes. So, um, Daisy... We'll talk about the production later, but, but this is Daisy, our, our performer Daisy. Um, and, as you can see, we set her in the bath. Um, talk more on that later. But she was a servant in the late 1880s. She was repeatedly raped by the master of the house and became pregnant. She was sent to the convent of Our Lady of Charity and Refuge in Barter Street to work in the laundry. It's not known what happened to her baby. Daisy went back into service after she left Barter Street. Daisy, and this is set in 1880. 
My story is one of give and take, plain and simple, like me. I am a servant. I give. My life, my time, my labour, my mind, day after day, repetition. Common. The poet's darling, sir said when he properly saw me. My petite white face, cheeks pink as petal tips. I felt the virgin's blood stain me as it did those first sacred daisies, picked from thorns for her son, tinted for life. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. The petals drop. I was born to be taken. Sir breaks into me, yanks me up by the roots, splits my stalk with a nail blade slit, rips me. Again, again, Sir makes a chain of me. My sap sticks. He filches me in tight spaces, lit by incisions where curtains don't quite meet. I'm his hidey hole. The months follow. Spring, summer, autumn. He loves me. He loves me not. Petals fall. I bear my shame in a Hereford home. I'm told the sin is all mine, my colours tempted. Live evil, live evil, live evil, everlasting, reflected in me, day after day penitence. Spent prayer, coppers and dolly mops, scorch of red-hot linen, pressed sheets, soap, stitches, starch, my fingers harsh, skin raw. Pins and needles of scrubbed bone. I will live to battle again. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. I'm told I have a new situation when I am unburdened. Very carefully chosen. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. A purer atmosphere, so a girl like me may disappear into honest hard work. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Sir's child is born without grace. Sister Sabina wiped her away, forever and ever. Amen. My story is one of give and take, plain and simple, like me. I am a servant. I give. Um, just to sort of say something about that briefly, about the history of Bartistry Convent, um, it's now St Michael's Hospice. The laundry at Bartistry has been converted into flats, so the laundry is no longer there. Um, but we had a look at the site, and I picked up this uh, very useful um, brochure that was in the chapel uh, there, and came up with a couple of quite interesting little nuggets of information, um, which I'll read now. Uh, these were from 1909, so slightly after the story of Daisy. But... In the back numbers of the Hereford Times, there were a couple of main in in events in the history of, this, of the convent. Um, in 1909, there was alleged sweated labour at the convent um, and a report on this, which was followed up a week later by a letter in the Hereford Times where the person said, your correspondent should remember that convents are not places for jollity, recreation, novel reading, etc., but they are abodes of work, prayer, penance and self-denial. Um, then in 1932, there was a story from the Daily Herald where the mother superior of Bartistry Convent, Mary Jane Newton, was fined £3 with £10 cost for unlawfully disposing of a body age 17, an inmate of the convent. And uh, from the Mother Superior's statement, she said, she was buried with full rights of the church. Unfortunately, the parents of the deceased girl were in very poor circumstances, and she was kept in the institution as an act of charity. So you start hearing these stories, and you start piecing together what's not said. Um, another piece of interesting information was from the census returns at Bartistry Convent. Um, so, for example, in 1871, there were 23 nuns living there, 
and 23 inmates, as they were called. In 1881, which is a year later uh, from Daisy, there are 21 nuns and 97 inmates. And it keeps going up with the number of girls that are being sent to this convent because they're pregnant. In fact, the, the whole thing kept expanding um, from the, the, the first in the 1880s. Uh, there was a, uh, in, right in the centre, in, in fact, in what is now the Cathedral School changing rooms, um, was the first, for want of a better expression, clearing station um, where girls in trouble would come and be filtered through this building um, if they were Catholic, generally sent up to Bartistry, uh, if they were Protestant, generally sent to St. Martin's. Um, but many of them were sent further afield as well if it felt like were, their positions in, in the local societies and communities were, were, were compromised or compromising for their families, for example, then they would be sent, sent elsewhere. And they were literally in that building for, for about five years, five or six years, before they went, it's too, it's, the building's too small, we aren't, you know, this business is too big. So they moved to a bigger building. And they were there for another 10 years. And then they got even bigger and bigger and bigger. And they moved to another building in Hereford. And so on and so forth. Until they were in a, in a significantly bigger building than the one that they started in. Over a period of about 60 years. Um, the next poem. Bryony. Bryony was our only... Um, dead speaker. Uh, so she's, she's the only one whose voice is from the grave as such in, within the poem. Many of them have passed on, obviously. Um, it focuses on incest, and incest in Herefordshire and uh, the surrounding area, incest is the largest cause of unwanted or extramarital pregnancies. Um, and I can't quite place who it was, but we've spoken to so many people. But I remember somebody saying that when they moved here um, as a social worker, they were asked, have you had experience of incest in, in practice? Um, and they said they had. And they said, well, that's good, because otherwise we'd have to send you to Norfolk to find out about it <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> to sort of get trained up in Norfolk and then come back to deal with these, these cases. Um, and uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it, it goes very much with the, the rural <clears throat> history, I think, um, it, it's, that incest was, was, was often key to this situation. Um, ready? Yes. Yeah. So Bryony became pregnant with her brother's child. She was sent to the lodge, 7 Ferris Street in Hereford, by a rescue worker, capitalised. The lodge was a refuge providing temporary help for girls and women before they were placed in maternity homes elsewhere. Bryony experienced severe depression following the birth of her baby, and was sent to Hereford County and City Lunatic Asylum in Burghill. Berg Berg um, incest was a common problem in rural communities, leading to a government inquiry into its prevalence in the early 1920s. Uh, Bryony, set in 1900. Herefordshire, our flesh and blood, ashes and dust, ashes and dust, Birthed and buried in red earth. Father, brother, uncle, daughter, sister, niece. Forked roots. We sleep together, my brother and I. Same bed, twisted. My legs each side of him. His hands behind, beneath. Shh, our secret. Dizziness, vomit, cramps. I thought he'd poisoned me. Father sees my condition, a knot in a piece of string. His girl come to grief. We will not speak of it. Sit on a stick and be rid. My brother whittles wood, a stiff spike like him. Ashes and dust, ashes and dust. I am salvaged, a rescue worker, sent to the city of sisters. The lodge 
Seven Ferris Street, an inmate, my own bed, one of the devil's cherries, undeveloped, distorted, a victim, inherited guilt. The truth about me is told. I am changing, child to woman, body shared with someone else, ashes and dust, ashes and dust. I feed it when I feed myself, feel it when I feel myself, nothing I can do about it. I am sent to a home, washing, spiritual training, a weeping elm in the garden. Mothers and babies play. I watch them and wince. My brother's bastard scratches. He wants to be let out. White skin, green veins, stretched, warped. I know it's a boy, male from female, unnatural. Mud sticks, feeble-minded. A small self, alone under elm. Listen without judgment. Rest me when I am dead. Ashes and dust, ashes and dust. I wait for a bough to fall. Bruises purple on my belly. I hit myself. Don't tell the sisters. When I can, I run, I run. The baby is born in an alley. I wrap him in newspaper. We are destined for hell. Disconnected, not real feelings. Ashes and dust, ashes and dust. Berghill, the lunatic asylum. Corridors, keep out of sight. Fingers lock tight. I don't know what to do with my hands. They find me in an outhouse. I have done my living. Ashes and dust, ashes and dust. Weakness, sudden strength, ghosts and dancing angels. I'm coffined in elm, unmarked. It's harrowing stuff. It's, it's hard listening, it's hard reading. The research period was difficult. Hmm. It was difficult. Um, but what we felt really strongly was that we wanted to celebrate the women because their togetherness, their, their, they survived, their resilience, their, it was extraordinary. We also wanted not to demonise the staff who were working in the homes. And what we found was the most unsettling was not the treatment that they had in homes, and certainly there were some horrible stories, but there were also some really positive stories. Um, it was society that sucked. That was where the damage was, the rejection of these, these women who knew no better very much, uh, very often. They, they, they didn't know any better, and they were blamed and pushed aside, locked away, silenced, hidden from view. Um, and they got through it. And listening to Sarah Jane read these poems again now, I think, oh, crikey, yeah, gosh, actually, it's pretty, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard listening to that. It's, it's horrendous, the, the awful, awful stories, tragic stories. But there was such a positive as well, and it was in the togetherness of the women. It was, the, the fact that they came <laughs> together, they stuck together. Many of the staff, like Anne, who we met, um, uh, actually really helped these women. They really helped them. So we, we were determined not to make it um, just a, a project that was miserable, which in, we, 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 uh, it wasn't ever going to be a very joyful experience. But there was, a, there was something redemptive in it, always. And we, what we hooked it into was beauty. I think, essentially, we, we found the beauty in, in as many situations as we could. And it's a sort of healing process. I, um, when I first moved down from Edinburgh, uh, 20 years ago now, I lived in Logbedine, so it's just down the road from the Bastardry Convent. And uh, I, I've always been, a, you know, I have very strong dreams. And the, the house was, a, it was an odd house. There were a few sort of visitations in that house, which I won't go into here. But uh, it, was, it, it definitely had a, some presence about it that wasn't very comfortable. Um, 
And I had a dream one night about, uh, I just had the, it was more a nightmare really, of a woman uh, outside my back door digging with her bare hands in the ground and frenzied, absolutely frenzied. And I, I said to her, what are you doing? I just wanted her to stop hurting herself, you know? And, and you know, you could see that she wasn't even thinking about the fact that her fingers were literally shredded and bleeding. And, and I wanted her to stop. Um, and she turned round and she looked at me with this absolute harried desperation. And she said, my baby's down there. And I, I had no idea. I had no idea what had happened just up the road, you know, sort of in the collective unconsciousness or something, I don't know. Um, and then when working with Sarah Jane on, on uh, this project, I shared that with her and, you know, you don't often share dreams like this, so I'm sharing it with you now. Um, but that felt like the heart of the Bartistry Convent and the next character that we are going to look at, who is Cowslip. <sighs> yes, read. When she became pregnant in 1930, Cowslip, or Anne, was sent to the Haven. By this time, it had moved to 12 Bridge Street, one of the clearing stations, 12 Bridge Street in Hereford, and then to Bartistry Convent. Her baby died shortly after birth and was buried there. Cowslip remained at Bartistry for the rest of her life. Many women with learning difficulties never came out of the homes or convents after the birth of their children. Uh, so this is Cowslip, set in 1930. I'd just like to say that the, she is the only one where she is named, um, for reasons that are, uh, become clear in the poem. I love the ladies at the end of the day. They stand together in a row, droopy and creamy and pregnant, the swell of their full stomachs fat with calves. I rest my hand on my own belly, stroke its slope, and wonder what made this happen. The cows move their heads up and down, tug wisps of straw, grind their teeth, settle in thick breath of dust and dung. This is female time, our rhythm. We stare at something or nothing with glazed, faraway eyes. I am slow they say, no better than a cow. I sob from my body when the herd heaves pain, their babies taken before they smell grass. I milk the no more mothers in the morning, pull their teats with wet mouth hands. You too, they say, I don't understand. I'm being sent away to a convent, the class of Mary Magdalene. Sounds like school read and write, not the place for a farm girl like me. Peter says it was because we did sex, but I don't believe him. He can't be right. There wasn't a hole in my tights. My name is Anne. I'm told it suits me. Patron saint of unmarried women, mothers, grandmothers, the expectant. I lost my child. She came out wrong. Too small, too scrawny, too much of a runt. I was not mother enough to carry her. The nuns take me under their black wing. It was God's will. She was not meant to be. We pray for her day-old soul, drop her in a hole in the ground, topped off with a little wooden cross. I move away from the press of heavy laundry, slip out to see the ladies in the convent dairy. I know I will live here forever, until I'm the old woman in my dreams, clawing the ground. Fingers bleed, howling like a cow to the bony trees. My baby is down there. I carry Our Lady's bunch of keys, my rosary beads. Hail Mary. Reverend Mother gave me leave. I'm at risk of kisses where I come from. Here I am the slow one. I can be trusted. My home my buyer, not seen, not heard, content to lumber. 
I won't run away. I love the ladies at the end of the day. Okay. <laughs> so the next poem, um, Forget Me Not. Uh, Forget Me Not was a land girl. And, oh gosh, where to start? What, what I personally love about the next poem is, is the metaphor that Sarah Jane uses about the dancing and the, the dance of life, the dance of romance, the dance of um, the land girls when they go out to the parties. Um, and it feels like a dance, this song. And so musically, actually, that, that's very much where we went. We kept it very upbeat and then hollowed it out. There's a, there's a reference to America. We hollowed it out at the, the point of the dancing stopping. It would be too preemptive. Um, but and musically, uh, because of the relationship with the GI that she has, she becomes pregnant. Um, and musically, we took it... It was interesting musically. So we went from a very local country dance feel to a kind of bluesy American hint and then brought it back and sort of merged the two. It was a fascinating process. Um, uh, did it go? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so she was in the Land Army during the Second World War, forget me not. She became pregnant by an American soldier stationed in Herefordshire and was sent to Bartistry Convent again. It was impossible to trace the father's whereabouts after the end of the war and the baby was subsequently adopted. Forget Me Not, set in 1944. I wanted to stand on my own two feet and not fall over, so it was a major step the first time I went to the dance hall. We were land girls, no uniforms, we dressed in our Sunday best. My favourite outfit, yellow blouse, sky blue skirt, I made it myself. It floated out like blossom, blossom. I used to dance with lots of men, never the same partner twice. The band played only for us, for us. And the American soldiers, they come up for the ride and grab hold of you and swing you round and turn you inside out. And you couldn't do it properly and you had two left feet and you pretended you loved it and then you did love it, love it, love it. It was electric, Hollywood magical. And there was one, he buttonholed me, wore me on his lapel like a medal. I lived for dancing with him him. My father didn't approve, must not, must not, but I could have danced on the greenhouse roof when I heard the music in my head and tasted peanut butter and jelly and heard him whisper, baby, my baby, I won't forget you. Whirling, unfurling, oh, America filled me up. Wide open spaces, larger than my life, my would-be husband. And then the dancing stopped. His troop called away to a world away, leaving America unmapped. I heard a different tune, unplanned. A sickening, thickening, kicking, jitterbug jive, throwing me about, turning me out from country hostel to city home, a newborn hostility. I soldier on, one of the fallen, but there's no memorial to me. I am dealt with. My depravity drummed out, shameless character strengthened, the sternest warfare against evil, our foe armed with skill, cunning, taking advantage of every mistake and chance. Steam supplants harvest air, machinery, pregnant muscle operating rollers, pressing irons, the gasp of stretch and sweat, hands on funds for the righteous fight. Sisters, forces in the field, unpick my knowledge of wickedness. Self-abnegation, atone for sin, sin. My baseborn boy, he slips from me almost unnoticed. A shared scream. Mama! America! I breathe your birth, my son. I name him after him, but that's my secret. He's one of the lucky ones. I've done the right thing. Breath, a fresh identity. Breath, clean parents. Breath, adopted of God. Forget, forget me. Say it, forget me not. 
Uh, just a, a little bit of history there with that one, um, which came through from Elizabeth. Um, the annual report for um, the uh, Haven that year um, said that uh, the number of cases of, of pregnant women, um, unmarried pregnant women this year, was a record. It wasn't surprising in view of the vast numbers of young men and women working in the forces and in the factories. And there's a quote... The artificial and exciting conditions thus created constitute a grave moral danger. Home ties are loosened and moral values are disturbed. Um, and then it goes on to say that uh, several women have had their babies adopted, having decided this was the best way. But, quote, but in most of these cases, I do not feel this has been a wise decision on their part. <laughs> One of the things that really struck us when we were conducting the research period was the diversity. These were, were not stereotypical anything. They were women of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all classes. And uh, the ages ranged, if, well, from not the characters we've used, but the, there were children. There were children, sort of... Uh, inter intercepted in their what was predicted to be their downfall um, as a sort of preemptive strike, as young as eight sometimes. Um, in in the characters that we're using, our youngest was fourteen, and our oldest was forty-four. And these are real people, real stories. Sometimes we merge two or three stories for the for the in order to kind of do the the history justice and to try and make it work. Um, so that we covered everything, if you like. And so sometimes two or three characters were brought together in order to facilitate that. Um, but there was no need in this situation uh, with uh, Our Lady Foxglove, who was 44, and she, was, she went to St Martin's home in the early 60s, um, pregnant for the fifth time. She was a prostitute. She was the sort of queen prostitute in Hereford at the time. And she burst in. She burst into the home and said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here for my holiday, basically. Uh, a breath of fresh air to a lot of people. But she took, and she took the younger ones under her wing somewhat. But our friend Anne, who was the deputy matron at the time, said, but, you know, the pill is available. This is, this is silly. But, of course, the pill was only available if you were married. So for anybody who wasn't married who really probably didn't want to be having children, it wasn't available. So our friend Anne went up to the welfare committee with our friend Foxglove and said, you have to give this woman the pill. And they said, why would we do that? And she looked at every one of them in the eye and she said, because if you don't, I will tell your wives... And they signed. <laughs> so Foxglove was the first unmarried woman, certainly in our region, to receive the pill. She worked in Rotherwood's munitions factory by day and uh, as a prostitute in Hereford by night. She had five babies, all born at St Martin's mother and baby home. At 44 years, she was the oldest woman admitted there in the early 1960s, before the pill had become more widely available. Foxglove, set in 1962. Broad Street, Union Street, Commercial Road. I know my way around the city, the men, the life. I'm the hidden service that keeps the heart pumping, money flowing, the body politic breathing. My dad knew the value of a daughter, put me on the streets when he saw my breasts under my vest. He drank my profit down to the last drop. Death rattled in the bottle. I worked in munitions at Rotherwurst by day. Us girls churning out shells to kill Hitler. So many weapons for one man. My men swarm. I stood my ground and hooked them. I saved my money, my immoral earnings. Left my digs, bought a nice little house. Two bedrooms, semi-detached, a garden. Space enough for me and my life, my own. I wear good clothes, more style than a wife. I can afford nylon stockings, my glamour. 
beautiful underwear from Cheltenham. Sex is like selling a Cartier ring. I've had five babies, an occupational hazard, all born at St Martin's, my holiday home. The staff expect me. Again is my surname. I greet the novice with, oh, you're new. I'm the mother I'll never be to the younger girls. Make sure blokes keep their tool in their trousers. I fret like a parent. Keep your hand on your halfpenny. Wear passion girl killers girls if you have to. My best friend, Betty, looks after my clients when I'm in the family way. There's irony. No affection, no responsibility. It's business. Car parks to hotel rooms, Johns to Alderman. I am pregnant with stories, but I know when to keep quiet. My men pay for that. They like the experience, never use rubbers. Children that come are not theirs or mine. But I am privileged. I'm on the pill. First girl of my trade in the county. The men on the Moral Welfare Committee. Husbands, red-faced, acquiesced. I am old for my age, but I've still got my looks. I haven't been put through the ringer in a laundry house of nuns with their spit and their spite. Drop your drawers here, ladies. You're never far from a spire in Hereford Centre. I tell the homegirls they were pushed, not fallen. Conditions from time immemorial. Just look at Eve. And Mary, the virgin. Her son changed the world. I felt really strongly that I wanted to, um, with the performance element of the project, I wanted to look at it as an incremental. I wanted to, to drip feed, really to come out on the breeze. So we did it in, in three stages. Stage one, um, once the poems were adapted into songs, I rehearsed them as they came with the core cast. And then their brief was to, to go out and perform them wherever. I wanted to perform them near the sites themselves, so that was done. Um, but apart from that, it was wherever they felt it was that moved to sing the song. But the condition was that they had to not be seen, um, and they had to have somebody with them. Felt with the with the material and the vulnerability of performing in in public places when people aren't expecting it. It's good to have somebody with you, kind of as a gatekeeper or something, caretakers we called them. And the job of the caretaker was not just to look after the performer but to witness what the response was and then to send me the documentation, send me a photo um, and the fact that maybe one person passed on a bike or maybe nobody heard or maybe several people heard and nobody stopped or, you know, just what happened in the public response. And that in turn became uh, something that, because the Hidden Gems project is, um, the, fund, the fund really encouraged a digital element um, so th those photos and that documentation was, I recreated them as digital kind of art pieces with, with, uh, with the text of, of what the response was turned into something slightly more poetic. Um, so they all went out as they happened on Twitter, on Facebook and on um, Instagram. Uh, and these songs went far. They went as far as Amsterdam, Brussels, Budapest, Dublin, <laughs> Edinburgh, and countless other places with, within the UK. Just because, and they didn't do particular journeys for that. They were going there anyway, these, the, the cast members, the performers. Um, and they sang them. And I loved the idea that these songs, these women's stories were out just... You know, people used to sing. People used to sing while they were cooking or hanging out the washing or walking to work. People used to sing. You would just hear it. You'd pass a house with the window open and you'd hear a song drifting out at the same time as you could smell the pie being baked. Nobody really does that anymore. They've all got their headphones in or their heads down or it doesn't come out of their mouths so much now. And I really wanted... the to couple that concept with the notion that these women's 
presences were, were hidden, were hidden away. And maybe, maybe somebody was singing to their baby in the back garden in one of the homes and they would have heard. But to, to st their voices to be the first thing, the voices to be the first thing that came out, which they did. There were, there were literally a hundred performances uh, as widely spread as, as I said, and, and all of those were documented online. And then the next stage was stage two in the week of the final performances where they were seen, but I didn't want them to be quite united with their voices at that stage. So we had um, uh, a full community company uh, with vintage prams and speakers in the prams playing their songs. So they were silent. There was a, there was a dislocation between them, their visibility and their voices, so they were disconnected. So the, the speakers just had their voices on a loop in a very fragmented way in the, speak, in the prams in Hightown in Hereford. Um, and then they would, uh, they would promenade. They looked extraordinary, these women. They were all in white. I wanted them all in white for obvious dramatic reasons. Um, uh, and they would promenade round Hightown and then come down Church Street and into Cathedral Close, whereupon uh, the doctors, uh, also in white, so they stopped with their prams all in a row, and the doctors came, and they removed their prams from them, and left them standing and took their prams off. Uh, and then, at that point, the, the, the speakers were decanted into the various locations, the installations where the final performances would be. Um, and the audience then effectively followed, it was a promenade performance, so they moved from station to station where they heard the poems adapted for songs with the people in the bath or in the courtyard or in the doorway or, or wherever we placed them. Um, and we started each performance with the speaker singing the song and then the performer joining in live and then the speaker fading out, and then the, so the, the women were quite clearly reconnected with their own songs, with their own voices. And it was really beautiful. Yeah. It was incredibly powerful, yeah. such a simplistic thing to do. Um, it wasn't fully funded, obviously, so uh, the, the, we kept it all very simplistic in terms of production values as well. The yeah. biggest nightmare actually was getting people to move round <laughs> in, in time without, without stalling and having to wait outside each station. I mean, I'd just like to say it was absolutely fascinating for me because I had no idea how it was going to be staged. So I was writing these poems, handing them to Estelle, who was then adapting them for songs. I knew it was going to be a promenade performance, but beyond that, I, I knew nothing. So when I went on the first night to see it, uh, I, was just, I was just astonished and um, very pleased. <laughs> and... Uh, incredibly moved and in some ways I just I, I had the feeling of like I can't believe I've written that I had that feeling it, I can't believe that I've done that that that's come from my head and I know that might sound incredibly big-headed but I don't mean it like that it, it was just a real um revelation to me really because I I've I just, I just thought if somebody asked me now where did they come from I would find it very difficult to say it just you just get in the zone and do it and um and they the poems flowed they didn't take long to write really and they just sort of flowed and but when i saw the the performances i was just oh god i mean i just thought right when's the next one <laughs> when's the next project so yeah. um yeah. And, and they and they went from their individual voices. It felt very important again to uh, to end with something redemptive. Yeah. And after the individual performances, there was a uh, they they each appeared in a sort of medley in the Powell Theatre, um, one by one by one. They joined in with each other, and then whoosh, there was a flood of a, a another twenty women community mm. choir joined in, and they were yes, all I, I must admit, just as a last thing, I thought there were going to be nine women in the production. I didn't realise there was going to be 30. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was kind of, well, you know, when they all came on. It's, uh, so we're left yeah. now with the sense that these women have been seen and they have been heard and we've celebrated their, their resilience and their survival. In terms of uh, legacy, 
Uh, we would like to now find more funding to... Uh, there so many people came, people who never go to theatre came to see it, um, people who always go to theatre came to see it, and I love the full spectrum of people who came and heard them and saw them and, and appreciated them. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the response was unanimous that actually it needs to go further. So mm -hmm. that's where we are now. We're trying to just think about how we can do that and how we can really develop it and give it a full production and, and the, the reach that these women deserve. Hmm. Let's leave it there, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>